Well, I would like this morning to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 15 this morning, beginning in verse 1, Luke 15. In verse 1, you'll find that on page 874 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And so hopefully you could uh, find your way there. And as you do, I, I do just want, want to, um, well, to begin, I, I, I don't know if you noticed in the bulletin which you received when you came in this morning, on the back it uh, reports the giving that you gave in support of the persecuted church as we took up that offering early November. And I, I'm very pleased to see that we exceeded last year's offering and uh, we have given $15,548 to help and support the persecuted church. And do we celebrate that? Um, I rejoice. We should rejoice in the fact that God is using us and the resources in which we have in order to support our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now I, I want to challenge you, as Pastor Josh did earlier in our service, that you would consider how you can give and give sacrificially to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. In fact, I want to go beyond that. And I want to suggest to you, if you are a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, your pastor is asking you to give to this offering that we would support our over 5,000 missionaries who are taking the gospel to some of the hardest reached, closed, darkest places in this world. And this is all this money that we give. In fact, the IMB, half of its budget comes from the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so my hope is that we would give. I trust you will give. My family is going to give. We are going to give sacrificially as we do every year. My children are going to give sacrificially as they do every year. And I would encourage and challenge you to do the same. And that God may be glorified to the nations. Even we sang it, didn't we? All nations come to him. And that's our goal, of course. And so um, with that in mind, we turn to this beautiful passage in Luke chapter 15. And we'll begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And you note in verse 8, and Jesus responds by saying, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the lost coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful now that we can come and to hear from you. We're thankful for these wonderful teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, the example that he has, and the truth that he gives. May it be a great encouragement to us. May it draw us closer to uh, you. Uh, may you draw us closer to you through it. May, we, may you exalt yourself. May we understand more clearly who you are what you do, that we might be, do likewise, that we might be one by you, that we might be drawn to you, might capture our heart and our affections and our joy. And so, Father, help us this morning as we hear from your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. My hero, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, you know, some, I imagine some of you perhaps are getting sick of hearing about Charles Spurgeon, um, but uh, too bad. Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, perhaps the greatest English-speaking preacher ever, 
uh, months after his conversion at the age of 15, was sitting in church when he had these thoughts. He He writes, the thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced by, to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. C.S. Lewis, another great British Christian, also describes his conversion to Christianity. And he does so very similarly, though he came to Christ 100 years later or so. He wrote, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. For the first time in my life, I examined myself with a serious practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts. A bedlam of ambitions. A nursery of fears. A harem of fondled hatreds. My name is Legion. An amiable agnostic, he writes, will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me... They might as well talk about the mouse's search for a cat. You must picture me alone in my room night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to heaven to a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. A beautiful description of what God has done over and over and over. In fact, I would suggest to you that your conversion is not much unlike, though it may not look like it, I think under it all, it is God, as the book of Hebrews tells us, He is the author of your faith. He is the perfecter of your faith, and he is doing exactly what these men describe as Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 15. As Christ shows us in, in, beaut- in these three beautiful stories that he has come to seek and to save the lost. And he tells these stories to describe his love in the saving and his, his joy in saving those who are lost. Today we're going to consider the second of those three stories. 
The first, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we considered the, the parable of the lost shepherds. And uh, next week, God willing, we'll begin the parable of the lost sons, if you will. And today, I want to consider this very short parable in verses 8 through 10. We call it the parable of the lost coin. Now, what you'll note as we work our way through it is that it's very similar to the parable of the lost sheep. In fact, I had fully intended to preach both of these parables together. And, and of course, I didn't. Uh, and the reason I didn't is because... I just love Luke 15, and I just want to linger here for a little bit. And I don't know if you remember working through Luke, and Luke 12, and Luke 13, and Luke 14, and, and, and Jesus speaking about hell over and over again, and the door being shut, and the gnashing of teeth, and the, the weeping, and the demands of discipleship, and hate your family, and hate your own life, and carry your cross, and renounce everything you have. I don't know if those were hard sermons to hear, but they were hard to preach. And so I'm very happy just to kind of hang out here in Luke 15 as we celebrate the love of God in saving sinners. Is that okay with you? All right. Well, if it's not okay, too bad, once again, um, because that's what we're going to do. And and I tell you all this because we're going to work our way through this, and you're going to think, man, this sounds awfully similar to what we heard uh, a couple weeks ago. And it is very similar. And so that's just what we're going to do today. We're going to consider who God is. I, I hope he gives us just wonderful insight into who he is, renews us once again. Specifically, I want to consider this morning from this parable and the passage that precedes it. What does God love? I wonder how you would answer that question. I I know there's a number of ways to answer that question. But what does God love? And Jesus teaches us these wonderful insights here into the loves of God. You'll note, first of all, that God loves sinners. Consider verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now you need to understand that Luke 15, 1 and 2 is the key to understanding all three of these parables. That you can't get the, you know, this, the context, the motivation in which uh, G, in, uh, compels Jesus to tell these stories. And so you won't understand, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son if you don't understand why it is that he's saying it. And he's saying it because these sinners are gathering to him, right? And and he's communing with them and he's eating with them. And and of course, the religious class is very annoyed and upset by that, as you saw in verse 2, right? The the Pharisees and the scribes, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Which in my mind is kind of one of the best summaries of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus receives sinners, right? And it's ironic that it comes from the mouth of the Pharisees. Because they're not celebrating this fact. It is not Jesus receives sinners, yay, praise God. They are grumbling, they are annoyed. There is no admiration, just condemnation towards Christ. And, and I want to be clear, by the way, when, you know, today in our context, when you eat with somebody, it's a nice thing to do, isn't it? And you, you break bread and, and it's nice to be with them and, and we're going to eat with a family from church after church. Maybe you will as well and you'll have a nice time, I trust. But in Jesus' culture, to eat with someone was to welcome them into your life was to extend to them friendship, was to extend to them a community that you're inviting them to be in. And and Jesus, we see very clearly, wants to be in community with with sinners, with tax collectors, the very people that the religious class thinks should be excluded. And and I I think it's kind of, I I don't want to put the Pharisees in too bad of a light. I I want to remember the culture in which they are are grumbling at him. Because when when we hear the word sinner, as we do in verse 1, we're in... evangelical context and we think well i'm a sinner and you're a sinner we're all sinners so what's the big deal jesus eating with sinners 
But for them, a sinner was a class of people. It wasn't everyone. It was a, it was a way to describe terribly immoral people. So think prostitutes, perhaps. Drunkards. Slavers. Uh, drug dealers. Right? Gangbangers. Mafia. Strippers. Politicians. Right? Really bad people. Okay? Okay? Just terrible, terrible people. I try to do it with a straight face. But, uh, right? Jesus is receiving them. He's eating with them. He's forming community. Just imagine if, I don't know, Franklin Graham had a bunch of strippers over for Thanksgiving dinner, right? Or, you know, hanging out with Lady Gaga or somebody like that. And we might think, you know, what's going on here? This might confuse us. Maybe we might be even offended. This is who Jesus is associating with welcoming into his life and even even more than just sinners he's welcoming the worst kind of sinner as you see in verse one he's welcoming tax collectors now please understand tax collectors in this day uh, they were so ostracized they're so hated by their fellow uh, uh, jews that they were not allowed in the temple tax collector couldn't enter the temple tax collector couldn't bring a sacrifice a tax collector couldn't go to synagogue which is of course the old testament church if you will a tax collector was not even allowed to tithe now, you know you're bad when the church won't take your money, right? In fact, none of you are that bad, right? right? And yet, these tax collectors, they, they, won't even, they won't even take their money, and Jesus is spending time with them. He's eating with them. He's saying to people like Zacchaeus, as we'll see later in Luke, I'm going to your house today. And it was shocking. It was scandalous. The problem that we have is we think tax collectors are kind of cute and quirky, right? They're the funny little men like Zacchaeus. Please be clear, Zacchaeus was a terrible, terrible man. Despite the movies, please know that Rome was a brutal, conquering empire. And they would conquer nation after nation. And you know what they do when they subjugated people? They would take hundreds of men, nail them to crosses, line them on the highways leading into that town. And you go to that town to do business and you walk by hundreds of men dying upon crosses and Rome is sending you a, a message, aren't they? Don't mess with Rome. They were brutal. They were violent. They were this massive conquering horde and they conquered nation after nation. But if you're going to conquer and rule nations, you know what you need? You need a standing army. You can't have a militia. You need a professional army as Rome had. Well, how do you fund a professional army? Well, back then you didn't borrow from China. Okay? You collected taxes from the people you subjugate. And so Rome would make these agreements with these tax collectors. So these are fellow Jews who would take demand money from you to, to do two things. One, make themselves rich. And two, support the conquering army that may have very well crucified your dad or your son. Or your brother. And so you can kind of understand the outrage they must have felt when Jesus, this rabbi, says to tax collectors, you come down. I'm going to your house today. I don't think there's a modern equivalent. I, I, I would try to think of one. Maybe may like if, if you were living in Poland in the 40s and a fellow Jew back then began to support uh, the uh, German army that was shipping your people off to concentration camps. And getting rich for it. I mean, these are the worst of people. And you, you, you can imagine the rage they must experience when they saw Jesus spend. These, are, these were bad, bad, bad people. And Jesus loves them. Jesus 
loves bad people. He loves evil people. He loves wicked people. If you think Christianity is somehow God loves the good people and hates the bad people, you do not understand the gospel. In fact, I would suggest to you that, that there, there are no good people. There is a good person. His name is Jesus. The rest of us are in the group of bad people, and he loves the bad people. He loves all the evil people. And in particular, these people who hurt all their life, you're an outcast, no one loves you, and you may get rich now, but please understand you are cut off from forgiveness, and God's going to damn you forever. And this is what they hear, and Jesus shows up, and he says, come, I'll spend time with you. Come be with me. Let's eat together. He's g- they're gathering to him because he loves them. He loves the sinful. And, and, and here they are gathering to him. And in fact, he tells not, not just one, not two, but three stories to drive home this point. The sinners are taking note, I think. They're, they're, Jesus is holding out hope to them. Maybe he's holding out hope to you today. Maybe no one knows, but you know the life you're living. And you know you're not the person that God wants you to be. And you have this little whisper in your, your heart saying, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did it again. You know how far you've, you've blown it. You're, you're a failure. Last Sunday I was preaching down in southern Virginia. And after I preached, a, a single mom came up to me and says, can I, can I speak to you privately? And just a little beautiful one-year-old child. And, and we found a little private place in the church building. And she looks at me and says to me, how can God ever forgive me? And she began to tell me her sin. Tell me her rebellion. You know what I did? Just because on my heart, I went to Luke 15. Let's spend some time here. Do you see how much he loves the sinful people? That he's welcoming them. He's forgiving them. Can God forgive you? Yes, God can forgive you. In fact, not only, listen, not only can God forgive you, he is delighted to do so. You understand that? And we'll see that more fully when we get into the parable. But it will teach us that, that God not only welcomes sinners, He welcomes them with delightful grace and, and elated forgiveness and, and joyful mercy. He's not just willing to forgive, He is delighted to forgive. You know what? You want to know what makes God happy? It is forgiving sinful people. In fact, we, we were talking about that last night in our family worship as we looked through at this passage. And I asked my children, I'll ask you today, do you delight to forgive? Do you, do you wake up on Monday morning, you're going to wake up and say, man, I hope I get to forgive somebody today. Right? We may forgive. But how often is it begrudging? How often do we have to pull it out of our heart? And so that's not God. God not only is willing to forgive, but he delights to forgive sinful people because he loves sinful people. And you may say, wait wait a second, I thought God is righteous and I thought God is holy, right? God can't tolerate sin. God must punish sin. Or, or, is it, or is it God just, God is loving and forgiving and he'll accept you no matter who you are and, and what you've done. Which is it? It's both, isn't it? Is that not what the cross teaches us? That cross satisfies God's justice and loves sinners. Does God hate sin? Yes. You want to know how much He hates your sin? Look to the cross. Does God love sinners? Yes. Do you want to know how much God loves sinners? Look to the cross. And so if you think, well, maybe I've blown it. Maybe I've gone too far. 
right? Maybe I'll just give myself over to this because God won't accept me the way they are. Please understand. Just look there in, in uh, Luke 15 too. Jesus receives sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He's looking for sinners. He loves sinners. You cannot go too far. You cannot outrun the love of Jesus. I love how John Bunyan put it some time ago. Sometimes a man, he writes, is as he apprehends, apprehends so far off from God, he thinks himself beyond the reach of his mercy. But he can reach us. I will say before thee and pray thee hear me, O the length of the saving arm of God. Do not thou go about to measure arms with God. I mean, do not conclude that because thou cannot reach God by thy short stump, therefore he cannot reach thee with his long arm. Look again, has thou an arm like God? It becomes thee when thou canst perceive that God is within reach of thy arm than to believe that thou art within reach of his. That's what Christ is teaching us. He loves sinners. And maybe you, you come here this morning and say, okay, I'm not in that class of people. Well, that's not the only sinners that are there. There are sinners called, called Pharisees and scribes that are there. You have immoral, wicked sinners, and you have moral and dutiful sinners. And all of, all of them, all of us, are lost without Christ. And all of us are loved through Christ. And so you see, first of all, that God loves sinners. Secondly, consider that God loves women. And I know that's kind of a weird point to make, and we won't linger long here. And, and, and in fact, if you're more exegetically minded, I want to say, I don't, this is certainly not the point of this parable, but I think it's inferred by it. And if you'll just allow me just to spend a moment here. Look in verse 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? We'll note this woman's search in a moment, but I just want you to note that it's a woman who's doing the search. You know, the first story is a shepherd who lost his sheep. The last story will be a father who lost his sons. And right in the middle, you have this housewife, if you will, who lost a coin. In fact, Jesus is always doing this, especially in Luke's gospel. Luke, I think, mentions some 30 women in his gospel by name that no other place in the Bible are they mentioned. Luke is constantly trying to elevate women as we see Jesus do over and over again. Constantly putting stories of men next to stories of women. For instance, in Luke 7. We have the healing of the centurion slave and then immediately following the raising of the widow's son. In Luke 11, we read about the sign of Jonah from the Old Testament. Men from Nineveh and the queen of the south. In Luke 13, there are two parables about the kingdom of God. A man sowing mustard seed and a woman mixing leaven into dough. In Luke 13 and 14, there are two miracles on the Sabbath. A man being healed with dropsy and a bent over woman being healed by our Lord. In Luke 17, we'll have, when Jesus speaks of his second coming, there'll be a, he'll use an example of men working in the fields and women grinding their grain. We also find in Luke's gospel two parables about persistent prayer. One, a man at midnight knocking on his neighbor's door and another, a widow bothering a reluctant judge. You see what Jesus is doing. Unlike the preachers of his day, unlike the rabbis of his day, he wants to teach women. He wants to bless women. He wants women to relate to these teachings in which he's giving. And so he's going to use them as examples. He understands, as we do, I hope, that women, just like men, are made in his image. And Jesus elevates them in a culture that refused to do so. In fact, women, uh, if you read the Gospels, are never the problem. Uh, You won't find a single occasion when a woman is opposing Jesus' ministry. 
The women are gathering to him, and it's the men who are the only ones who will oppose him. It's the men who fight with him. And he is right here in this passage going to use this woman as an example of what God is like. Using an example, I think, to encourage women. And so I just want to briefly point that out and say any, any tendency to demean women in our culture, any tendency to fail to rejoice in the gifts in which God has given them, any tendency to withhold theology or teaching from them runs totally contrary to the heart of God. God loves women just as much as he loves men. Consider third, that God loves saving. And here we get into this parable. Note verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The story, of course, is this woman who has ten coins, she loses one. The coins are drachmas. That will be a a day's wage. So this is a a good amount of money she lost. Um, Of course, the lost coin represents the lost sinner, doesn't it? And what Jesus is trying to help us understand is our spiritual condition, that we're like a lost coin. That is, you and I are not only lost, right? We will stay lost until someone finds us, just like the lost sheep. There's nothing we can do to actually help ourselves out in saving. There's no meeting him halfway. We, we, we have to, we must be found by him. The good news is that what's, that's what Christ has come to do. Luke 19.10, Jesus has come to seek out, right, and to save the lost. God won't leave us in this condition because he loves to save. And so he's going to begin to search for us. And he describes this woman's search in verse 8, to the, I think, to emphasize the, the degree in which he is going to search for his lost sinners. And so you note that uh, this woman begins her search. She would live in a very dark home. There would be no windows in her house. They would just simply have small slits and very thick walls. There would be a dirt floor. And usually upon that floor will be a layer of straw. And Jesus tells us that this woman lights a lamp in her dark home and she sweeps the house. She sweeps the straw away. He says she searches diligently. She's looking in every nook and cranny. You can imagine her on her hands and knees, right? We're looking around the house. Nothing was left unturned. She must find that lost coin. Right? And she will, according to verse 8, look diligently. And when will she quit? Until she finds it. She's not going to give up. And this is described Jesus' search for us. How he seeks us. He seeks us in order to find us. It's why he came to earth. Why, why we will celebrate this Advent season. He became a baby. It's why he became a man. Why he performed miracles. Why he healed. Why he preached the kingdom of God. It's why he died. It's why he rose again to find the lost. To save sinners because God loves saving. And I'll tell you, he is still looking. He hasn't stopped his search. He is looking in places like Eagle Butte and Kurdistan and Ghana and Tijuana. He's looking in places in Los Angeles and, 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 and in Loudoun County. He is searching for the lost and he is going to use you and I to do it. We are his ambassadors. We are his search team. We are out to seek and to save the lost through the work of Christ. This is why I feel so passionate. We, we must not only proclaim the gospel, we must help those who will take the gospel into the corners of this world to proclaim it in places we cannot. This is what Christ wants to do. He wants to use us, and he will use us to find every coin that belongs to us. And he does so because 
we are of value to him. You think about this woman, she, she got 10 days wages, okay? She, she loses one day's wage, but she still has nine other days wages saved up. In other words, she's doing pretty well for herself. This is a culture in which they are living day to day, hand to mouth. And this woman, she's, she's, she's got a little bit of saving. It's not the end of the world. She's not looking for this lost coin because she's thinking, okay, I'm not going to eat tomorrow. She's not searching diligently because she's going to lose the house. She has nine other coins. And yet she's freaking out, isn't she? She's lighting the lamp and she's put, moving the couch out in the front yard and she's clearing out the attic. She's looking everywhere. And what Christ is showing us is not simply his search, but the love that he has for us. That we are his treasured possession. And I, I just imagine what these... I mentioned this last time I preached the parable of the lost sheep, but Jesus really taught this. I mean, and there were really (laughs) terrible, sinful people gathered around him. And I just kind of try to put myself in that that audience, if you will. And I just imagine what they must have been thinking. You know, they they think, okay, I'm the coin. Yeah, I get that. But he has nine others, right? He'll get along without me. He doesn't need me. And Jesus is saying, listen, I will tear the house apart to find you. There is no length in which I will not go in order to find you. Does God need you? No, he doesn't need you. Does God want you? Beyond your imagination, he wants you. And he says, I'm going to seek. You're one of his coins. You're his treasure. You are not only utterly lost, you are utterly loved. And he has come to save us because God loves to save. And he will go to amazing lengths to do so. When I think about the length in which God goes, it reminds me of a story that I heard some time ago. It was on September 2nd in 1945, when some of you know World War II ended, as Japan surrendered to General um, Douglas MacArthur aboard the USS Missouri. And yet not all of Japan surrendered on that day. There was one Japanese soldier named Hiro Onoda, who was left on the Philippine island called Lubang, and he had orders to keep that area secure while the rest of the Japanese forces evacuated. And so he stayed on that island. It was nine months later that Japan surrendered, and yet this man, Hiro Onoda, never got word. And so he continued to follow his orders. He continued to, to fight his fight. And for 29 years, Hiro Anada lived off this, this island mountain, uh, this, this uh, mountainous island, raiding fields and gardens, ignoring the leaflets that were dropped every year, announcing just to him that Japan had surrendered, and uh, uh, that Japan was now an ally of the United States. He considered it all this allied propaganda. And when it was all said and done, over a million dollars was expended. Several countries were involved. 13,000 men were used to find them, which they did on March in 1974. And this man, Hiro Nada, was brought before his former superior officer who read the terms of surrender. He then handed over his rusty sword. And for him, the war was finally over. He was 22 years old when he's left on that island. He was 52 years old when he returned to Japan. Now just think for a moment of the cost to bring peace to this one man. Three decades, several countries, over a million dollars, 13,000 men. I'll tell you, it is nothing 
compared to the effort and the length in which Christ will go to save his lost ones. He loves to save. He longs to bring peace to you. In fact, lastly, consider this. That God loves repentance. Look at verse 9. It says, uh, uh, Jesus finishes the story when he says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So just like the parable of the lost uh, sheep, when, when the lost was found, you notice that there's, there's a party that's being thrown. And we'll see this again in the parable of the lost sons. A party when the lost comes in. And, and Jesus tells us the meaning. He, he's telling us when, when lost sinners are found, when lost sinners are saved, you know what happens in heaven? A party happens, right? There's heavenly joy when the lost are found. Now, by the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus just kind of says offhand he, what, what is happening in heaven? Like he has a particular insight as to what's going on in there. After all, he, of course, created it. And so he says, by the way, this is what's happening in a place you've never been to, but I, I just left there about 30 years ago. Okay? And so there's party happening when this lost sinner does what? You see that at the end of verse, nine, uh, verse 10, excuse me, when the, the, the one sinner repents. You see, God seeks the lost sinners, but we must repent. We must surrender our lives to Him. Now, it's here that that our culture gets uncomfortable. This is very much kind of runs contrary to Western culture. It was the poet Lord Byron who said, The weak alone repent. Repentance is for losers, in other words. I think that's a very American idea, to be perfectly honest. In America, we're told, you know, fulfill your dreams and be all you can be and set your mind. You can do whatever you want, right? And, 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 and be true to yourself, right? Do we not hear these things? In fact, the only reason an American, I think, would t- call for another American to repent is if they're not being true to who they truly are. You've got to repent and be yourself, right? And that's the idea in, in our land. The, the idea of repentance runs contrary to, to our culture. In fact, William Ernest Henley, the poet, said, It matters not how straight the gate how charged the punishments with, excuse me, how charged with punishments of the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, he says, we used to talk about straight gates and narrow roads. and We used to talk about heavenly scrolls that talked about punishment, but we know better now. We now know that, that we are the, the masters of our fate. We are the captains of of our soul, right? Times have changed. We don't care what God has to say anymore. I alone determine what's right for me. I alone save myself. I am my master. I am my captain, right? And, and it's this very attitude that is very American from which we must fundamentally repent. Is that not what repentance is? It is rejecting this idea that I'm my own master, that I'm my own captain, right? We... See, when, when Christians talk about, you, you could go out this Christmas season and you could talk about God. You could talk about Jesus, I imagine, even this Christmas season. You could talk about his love for sinful people, and they'll, they'll, they'll find that very interesting, and, and they'll probably even agree. You talk about his love for, for saving people and helping people, and, and they will all agree, and they'll all nod their heads. And then you begin to say, but we must repent. We must submit. We must surrender ourselves to him. And it's, it's here which you will find the rejection. No, no, no. I'm in charge. I'm my master. 
And yet Christ says, no, the joy is reserved for those who reject this radical self-centeredness that is in all of our hearts. We turn from our own way. We don't simply get to do what we want. We cannot simply follow our heart. We must follow Christ. And it's when we do, when we, we, when we submit, when we, we, we surrender, when we repent, please understand there is no amount of sin in which God will not forgive. Right? If you repent. And as I mentioned, he's not simply willing to do so. He rejoices in doing so. You see, there's a party in heaven. There's joy before the, the angels of God, he says. There's this heavenly rejoicing, this angelic rejoicing. And it's incredible to think about what's happening in heaven when we turn over from our sin. In fact, I find that there's a word there I find very interesting. You see that in my translation? It's the preposition before. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner repents. I, I just want to speculate for a moment if I can. So I'm going to take off my preacher hat and just be a Christian kind of talking to you. So feel, in other words, feel free to check Facebook for like the next 90 seconds. Okay? But this literally, he says, there is joy in, in, the, in the sight of angels. So it's, I, I think the angels are rejoicing. But I wonder, uh, I, and there are other passages I think that imply this, but I, I wonder if it's just not the angels who are rejoicing, but it's, as the Puritans called, the triumphant church, the saints in heaven that rejoice when one sinner repents. I like to think that's the case. I like to think when, when you know, I, I, many of my children have prayed to receive Christ. I, li- I like to think, for instance, when, when S- Samaria, my daughter, bowed her knee and, and she she prayed to surrender her life in faith to Jesus Christ. I like to think that, that God called over her great-grandfather, Douglas Carn, who was a Methodist circuit preacher in Kansas, or her great-grandmother, and says, come here, I, I want you to listen to this. And they, they, they listen to this little girl pray to surrender her life to Christ in faith. And she says, amen. And as soon as she says, amen, heaven just erupts in joy. And there's laughing and celebration and cheering and hugging. And, and her great-grandfather falls on his knees before Jesus. And he says, thank you, my Lord, for saving my great-granddaughter. There's joy in the presence, in the sight, literally, in the sight of... By the way, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Just, just so you know, there are others who think this. So um, I'm in a group with other um, free thinkers. I don't know. But anyways... Um, we, we, we at the very least, okay, now tune back in, put your phones down for a minute. Um, we, at the very least, we see that the angels are rejoicing, which I find that interesting as well. Because when Jesus was born, as we know in, uh, in Luke 2, uh, we'll celebrate this Christmas. What do the angels, they show up and they begin to rejoice, don't they? They begin to celebrate glory to God in the highest, they say. And peace on earth on whom his favor rests, they say. What are the angels rejoicing in? Is it the birth of their Savior? Of course not. They have no need of saving. It is in the birth of our Savior. The angels who have no sin are rejoicing in the thought that you and I would be saved through Christ. And I will tell you, their joy is simply a reflection of God's joy. How could it be any different? And God delights in saving repentant sinners. And the angels evidently are well aware of what's going on here. And by the way, this is found throughout Scripture. Remember in Job when the angels gather to, to, to God and, and God says, hey, uh, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? How he loves me and he worships me and he serves me. 
Or you know in Ephesians 3 and verse 10, it says that the angels look at the church, the angels in the presence of God look at the church to discover the manifold wisdom of God in the church, namely in, in our unity. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that the angels are very interested when the church gathers together, and especially when the church gathers to pray. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, writing to the elders of the church, Paul says, I charge you in the sight of God, Jesus Christ, and holy angels. In Revelation chapter 2 through chapter 3, Jesus writes seven letters. We say he writes them to the church, but literally he writes them to the angels of those church. And perhaps it is, as some have speculated, that churches are a sign, these angelic beings to watch over us. And at least understand that the Bible tells us over and over again, they're watching us. They're aware. And I wonder if we were aware that they're aware, we would live differently. I mean, I wonder if, you know, tomorrow I... I don't know, I, I lose my temper. And all of a sudden you hear from above, boo! Right? 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 That'd be helpful, wouldn't it? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I should have lost my temper. Forgive me. Right? Right? Their, 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 their life would be different if we knew what was happening there. And their awareness of us, I think it would change. In fact, I wrote this sermon about a month ago. I've been thinking about that. Because, I, listen, I, you know what I want to bring? I want to bring heaven joy. I want to bring angels. I don't want to, I don't want to give delight to, to my enemy, to, to the demons and, and, and those who oppose us. I want to bring joy in heaven. I want God to say, hey guys, have you, have you considered my servant Stephen? I want you to watch this. Watch him walk away from temptation. Watch him pray with his wife or share the gospel with his neighbor or teach his children scripture. Watch him seeking me in prayer. And they all start cheering. boy, Stephen. Way to go. Right? I, I, don't, I don't want my enemies to say, see, look at him and fight against that temptation. He just walked right into it. How can he love you knowing what you did to save him? And then he goes right into that sin. I don't want to give cause for those who oppose me and my God reason to accuse me. I want to bring joy to God and those who live around him. That's what Christ is saying. You understand the impact you can have in this life on the, the heavenly realms. It's unimaginable. You say, well, what if well, 10 of us repent or 100 of us repent or 1,000 of us repent? No, I'll tell you, there's joy over one sinner who repents. Please understand today. I, I wonder if there are some of you just walk. You know you're just headed in the wrong direction. You know what's in your heart and you know what you're doing when no one's looking. But I tell you, someone is looking. You're not alone. No matter how far you've walked this path, please understand, if you would repent, doesn't matter how far you've gone, if you would repent right now, heaven would erupt in joy. I tell you this, not based, this is not hallmark theology. This is not Stephen's thoughts. These are the very words of Jesus Christ. You would bring joy to heaven. And maybe some of you have never made a decision to follow Christ. Maybe you think, no, I am the captain of my soul. How incredible would it be that you recognize there's so much more life and say, no, Christ is. I surrender to him. I wonder if one of you here, maybe, maybe more than one, if heaven's watching right now, I wonder if, I don't know, I wonder if angels are gathered around or maybe your family who's preceded you in death and belonged to Christ are gathering around and right now they're saying, come on, you're so close. You're so close. Won't you come? Won't you, won't you 
surrender your life, won't you repent? And if you would, the delight, and one day, that one day when you get to heaven, they will say, we, we, we knew that day. We, we knew that day in November in 2016. We were watching, in fact. You know how much joy you brought to us. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Hear that, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is the captain of my soul. He is the master of my faith. That's repentance. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's faith. That's it. It's not work your way there. It's not undo your bad deeds. It's simply surrender in faith. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and was born as a baby, as we will celebrate this year. But he was born as a baby, not so we, we, he would stay a baby. And we would delight in babies so he would grow up, live a perfect life, and be nailed upon a cross and, and killed. And not just killed, not just murdered, but the wrath of God would be poured upon him. He, he would, God would put him in hell for me and you. Paying for all our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead victoriously, bodily, physically, historically, to show that his payment was received. And now he says, if you will just simply repent, I'll save you. I'll bring, you'll bring joy to heaven. This is who God is. He seeks and saves the lost. Do you understand God this way? I, I, we think about Zacchaeus, that wee little man. You know, we feel p- sorry for poor Zacchaeus. No, he is a wicked, terrible man who got rich off the slaughter of his own people. He is not nice. He's not quirky. He's more evil than any person you or I have ever met. And Jesus says, I'm going to your house today because the gospel has come to save sinners. Because I'm seeking the lost. I'm lighting my lamps. I'm sweeping the floor. I'm, I'm taking out the furniture. I'm finding my lost coins. That is who God is. And, and, and sometimes people, we, we sometimes, don't we? We look at some people and we say, we just want to stay away from them. We don't want them anywhere near our family. And so those are the very people Jesus seeks. But let that sink into your heart. Who God is, and it might change you. You may wake up tomorrow morning saying, God, I want to forgive today. I want to, I got so much, I have so much grace to you. I am excited to go out and give mercy today. Help me to be like you. Help me to seek and to save the lost. As God did so in 2004. I love the story that Pastor Sam Nasser tells in his church in Bayview, Glen, Toronto. Sam Nasser is an Iranian who had a Iranian church and he was preaching in Persian and he noticed on one Sunday a woman ho- holding up her cell phone during his preach and occasionally she would, she would talk on the cell phone and he thought, okay, well, maybe it's an emergency happening. He's terribly distracted by it, but he just kind of, okay, well, maybe something's going on. Well, the next Sunday came, and, and she did the same thing. And the next Sunday, she did it again. And so finally, Pastor Nasser called her into his office and said, you know, you're, you're being very distracting. I, I, can't you take your phone calls outside uh, the auditorium? And she says, no, Pastor, I'm not taking a phone call. My husband, she said, is in Iran. And he's interested in learning how I became a Christian by listening to you. And she said, I call my husband in Tehran so he could hear you preach. And he puts it on speakerphone so my mother and sister can hear too. She said, they've been inviting friends and family over for, for three months. They've been listening to you preach. And more people are coming every week. I'm not talking on the phone, she said. I'm just holding it up so they can hear your message about Jesus. Well, you can imagine his attitude about this event changed. And the next Sunday, he preached on God's love for sinners. 
And while he was ending his sermon, the woman began to shout in the middle of his sermon saying, my husband, my husband, my husband has surrendered to Jesus. And she said, my sister and my mother, they want to come to know the Lord too. Even in Tehran, listen, he is looking for lost sinners. And I believe he looks every time the gospel is preached. And maybe he's looking for you right now. Maybe he would call you home. Pray, pray, my, my friend, that he would find you and that you would repent, confessing your faith in him, that heaven might rejoice that the lost has been found. Our Father in heaven, we are so delighted in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his unimaginable love, his elated forgiveness and delightful grace and joyful mercy, for which we have benefited from all eternity. We are so thankful that we have contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin from which we must be saved. We are thankful for your kindness and love and goodness to us. It is beyond measure. We are thankful that you invite heaven to understand and and to observe and to experience and to rejoice in the work in which you're doing in our lives. May we be mindful of this. May we be mindful that we now are to go out and to seek the lost, that you would use us, that we would delight in doing so, delight in forgiving. And Father, we pray for our friend here, maybe more than one, that they know in their heart that they are not living the way they ought to live. Maybe, maybe they've wandered away from you. Maybe they've never, never followed you at all. Will you not bring heaven joy by putting faith in their heart? that they might, even this moment, call out to Jesus, please save me. I repent. I turn from my self-rule. You are my master. You are my Lord. I believe you are the Christ. I believe you have died for me. And I believe you rose again. Forgive me. Will you not bring yourself joy, our Lord, by bringing the lost home, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.